and thank you all for coming back so promptly after the break. It's always good to stay on track with our agenda. Um, welcome to this, uh, the third session in our 10th anniversary conference today to look at the topic of the challenges of managing revenues and spending for modern government. Um, before I kick off, I'd like to thank again uh, PA Consulting, who are our headline sponsors for today's events, and also our other sponsors, the Advertising Association, APM, Burgess Salmon, and the Civil Service College for sponsoring um, today's activities. The challenge of managing revenues and spending is a key one for modern governments. Without the ability to raise the revenues needed to carry out government's functions and to spend money effectively, modern governments cannot work um, to their best ability. Since IFG was established 10 years ago, a lot of the focus has been around cutting public borrowing and managing spending down to try and achieve that objective. If anything, it feels like we're perhaps at a bit of a decision point now with borrowing back below pre-crisis levels. There's a question about what our fiscal objectives are going forwards. How are we going to manage spending and revenues to deal with the next challenges we face around an aging population, globalization, and other trends that are affecting our tax take? These are issues that we are very interested in here at the IFG. We have programs of work on managing spending and on tax reform. I'm really delighted to be joined today by three expert panelists to help us discuss these issues. So I'll ask uh, Robert Choate, Chair of the Office of Budget Responsibility, to kick us off. Um, each panelist will have about 10 minutes for opening remarks. And then I will turn to Annalisa Dodds, who's Labour MP for Oxford East and Shadow Financial Secretary, and then Nikki Morgan, who is Conservative MP for Loughborough, uh, and also chair of the Treasury Select Committee to give their reflections on what government can do to effectively manage revenue spent and spending in this challenging environment. So over to you, Robert. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Gemma. Good morning, everybody. It's a great uh, pleasure to be here and to uh, help celebrate uh, the IFG's 10th uh, anniversary. Uh, what I'm going to do is to just do a little bit of scene setting, as it were, as to... Uh, where we're standing in the management of, uh, of revenue and spending at the moment and some of the uh, challenges uh, looking ahead. Um, on a 10th anniversary occasion, it's obviously an interesting period to look back over a previous decade, and we've obviously been through 10, slightly more than 10, relatively eventful years for the public finances. But it is striking at this point, looking back over that sort of horizon, that in some ways we have been on a journey that has taken us back to something that is remarkably similar to the pre-crisis uh, position. The budget deficit, the headline gap between uh, revenue and spending, is now a bit closer to balance than it was uh, in the pre-crisis period. It's one and a bit percent of GDP compared to two and a bit uh, percent of GDP. And strikingly, the headline metrics of the size of the state are little different from what they were 12 years ago. For all the debate, uh, the political impact uh, and the discussion of austerity. Public expenditure in 2018-19 is now less than 1% of GDP lower and receipts are less than 1% of GDP higher than they were back in 2007-08. Of course GDP and crucially earnings are a lot lower now than you would have expected if you were doing a forecast back at that point. So the, the, the headline size of the state doesn't look very different, but there have been bigger changes in composition, both on the spending and receipt side over that period. And some of those, I think, reflect policy choices, and some of them reflect underlying trends that may continue to have an influence on fiscal policy choices in the years to come. So if you look on the tax side, 
Uh, as a share of GDP, receipts from income tax and fuel duty in particular are lower. Those, of course, are politically totemic taxes. We've had cuts in the personal allowance. We've had successive freezes in fuel duty. On top of that, there are underlying trends, the weakness of real earnings, growth, greater fuel efficiency. So an underlying weakness in the tax bases, but also policy decisions on top. In contrast, on the receipt side, VAT receipts higher than they were pre-crisis, national insurance contributions higher than they were, than they were pre-crisis, both largely down to policy uh, decisions, particularly the headline rise in the standard rate of VAT. Corporation tax receipts up a bit, uh, partly because of incorporations, people uh, you know, basically making themselves into companies, partly to exploit the tax advantages of doing so. Plus, you've also seen some new taxes, small individually, but adding up to a reasonable amount, for example, the bank levy and the apprenticeship levy. On the spending side, again, the aggregate figure's not hugely changed since pre-crisis, but spending on health, welfare, and local spending higher than they were pre-crisis, but most spending on most other public services and capital spending down. So receipts, spending, the deficit to a degree, all now pretty close to where they were at pre-crisis levels. In terms of the government's explicit fiscal rules, uh, some room for manoeuvre against the uh, target in a couple of years' time for the structural budget deficit. This is the famous £26 billion, the spending of which seems to be a lively subject of discussion and probably is just a few yards down the road uh, as we speak. Um, but the, uh, the government's uh, less spoken about but nonetheless formal fiscal objective of delivering a balanced budget uh, in the mid-2020s still a little uh, way off. And although the flows of receipts and spending pretty much back to where they were pre-crisis, we of course have a stock of debt, public debt, that has doubled as a share of GDP uh, since then. Uh, and that combined with the impact of quantitative easing means that the public finances are a lot more sensitive to surprises on inflation and interest rates than they were back then. Uh, in addition, we will have over the next few months better accounting for student loans. Now, that doesn't change anything in the real world, but it does mean that the current picture of the public finances is not, uh, is, you know, is, is slightly flattering uh, that the true measure of the deficit is probably a, a bit bigger than it suggests. So, as Gemma was saying, you could see this in that context at the end of this 10 to 12 year journey as being something of a decision point in terms of the medium-term fiscal strategy, the objectives for fiscal management, and also your choices about the size and role of the state over coming years. Uh, well, of course, it should be a decision point, but needless to say, uh, the elephant in the room of Brexit is clouding that at the moment, and uh, you know, once you've both uh, resolved this for us happily, then I think there's a lot uh, stable basis for making those sorts of uh, decisions. Um, when we do get around to taking those decisions, or when Parliament gets around to taking those decisions, I think you can see that they will be shaped in part by what you might think of as a set of attitudes and a set of pressures and a set of risks. In terms of attitudes, clearly there is a good deal uh, of austerity fatigue, not just in this country but elsewhere. We've had a long period of relatively painful uh, fiscal consolidation and clearly there is less political appetite to press on with debt reduction uh, than you would have seen in the absence of that. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, 
the idea of people, you know, uh, the, the fiscal discipline is not the, the front-running topic of conversation, I think, across the current contest or indeed across the political horizon more widely uh, at the moment. You also, interestingly, away from the, you know, let's not just beat up on the politicians, uh, there are vocal arguments from economists now, uh, interestingly, both relatively orthodox ones and relatively heterodox ones, that are endorsing a relatively relaxed view of budget deficits and debt. Uh, Olivier Blanchard, the former chief uh, economist of the IMF, gave a very headline uh, lecture early in the year saying that you shouldn't worry too much about uh, big increases in the debt-to-GDP ratio because it's going to continue to be relatively cheap for governments to borrow for the foreseeable future. People like Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary, arguing that even though the US has a relatively high budget deficit, now is not the time to be taking aggressive action to reduce it. And also, uh, uh, in part of the left as well, uh, an interest in what's called modern monetary theory, uh, which is basically saying that you can take a more relaxed view of uh, the uh, revenue spending choices and those things can be disentangled because at the end of the day if you're a government with its own currency you can print money if necessary to meet the gap between the two. So you have that set of attitudes, then you have a set of pressures, familiar ones like the demographic pressures uh, on pension spending, tougher over the next few years than they have been in recent years because they're not currently or in the next few years going to be offset by further increases in the pension age. There are a set of perhaps larger and quantitatively more important demographic and non-demographic pressures on the costs of health and social care. We know in the context of public spending management in the UK that health is the squeaky wheel that history suggests generally gets the grease. Uh, education, I think, is squeaking quite a bit, interestingly, in terms of the, uh, of the leadership campaign at the moment as well. On the receipt side, downward pressures on receipts from changing tastes in technology, excise duties, fuel duty, the nature of the world of work, perhaps putting downward pressures on income tax receipts as well. So you have that set of, of medium to long-term pressures that people need to take account of. And then you have a set of risks. Now, there's an awful lot of individual, as it were, micro-level risks. How much is universal credit eventually going to cost? What are you going to need to do about the defence budget, etc.? But clearly one important risk uh, is on the economy side. We haven't had a recession in the IFG's first 10 years. It will be brave to assume that we're not going to have a recession in its second 10 years. Uh, with interest rates still near, uh, uh, relatively near zero, are you likely to have to resort to fiscal stimulus, to expansionary fiscal policy more quickly if you need to support the economy in that sort of world? And clearly, I think, as well as planning for a sort of medium to long-term uh, underlying view, policymakers and would-be policymakers should be thinking now about the design of the next fiscal stimulus package when we need to deploy it, and crucially, the exit strategy from it. Finally, let me conclude by saying a little bit about institutions. All of this is taking place in an institutional uh, context in terms of the managing uh, of receipts and spending. Uh, we've had, a, you know, it's no surprise to anyone, this has been a difficult few years uh, for the Treasury in terms of public expenditure management and the political pressures that are faced there. When we see both in the near term, uh, the result of the leadership election, and then obviously further on, uh, if there are changes in government, how are the dynamics between number 10 and number 11 going to work 
and are they going to work in a way that is productive for responsible fiscal management or not. We have, I think, a greater sign of Parliament asserting itself, discussion now about whether we should have a budget committee in the House of Commons, whether you should have a parliamentary budget office to support that as well. Uh, interestingly, I think with both the Treasury and indeed the Treasury Select Committee, perhaps not entirely surprisingly, a little nervous about those prospects. The, the sound of tanks moving onto lawns can perhaps be heard there. Uh, and then for the OBR, uh, it's, you know, it is for other, others to judge how well we're performing in these sorts of circumstances. Clearly, it has been important, as it has been for uh, similar organisations in other countries, for there to be broad political support for the value of those institutions, even if at any given time people are bound to disagree with the particular judgments that you make uh, and the forecast judgments that you make. But it seems to me that facing all of the pressures, risks, attitudes that I've just be uh, discussed before, that the core role of the OBR, which is to increase and promote transparency around the public services, uh, around the public finances remains absolutely core. People will differ about their views of what should happen, what can happen, but you need a clear, well-informed picture to inform democracy, to inform policy decisions, and that, at the end of the day, is the greatest contribution that I think we can make as an institution to this debate. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. indeed Robert for those very stimulating remarks and I'll respond to them in a moment but I'd also like to repeat his congratulations to the Institute for Government for 10 years I hope we'll celebrate together many decades in the future as well so it's really really good to be here with you um, I suppose just a few points of reflection as I mentioned on Robert's speech before shifting on to perhaps what some of the solutions might be uh, certainly coming from uh, the official opposition's point of view um, first of all, thinking about whether the size of the state has remained static. I mean, Robert, you were very careful. You did say, of course, the composition has altered substantially. And that, that is certainly the case. I mean, it's not so easy to um, exactly work out what has occurred to the size of the state because we've seen a lot of reclassification of who is a public employee and who isn't. But um, the ONS has tried to exclude reclassification effects and in doing so, they suggest there has been a reduction in public sector employment of about 300,000 people since 2010. But most of that reduction, as of course many of you will know, has occurred in local governments. And arguably we've seen quite radical change in local government over the last 10 years. Um, currently, uh, actually I say currently, it was two years ago, I suspect the figure would be higher now. About 40% of councillors responsible for children's services, for example, saying they don't believe their council can deliver statutory children's services now, let alone all the other activities that local government is expected to do. So we've seen a very significant shift back of the state, arguably, when it comes to the delivery of local services. Um, secondly, Robert um, talked about the current state of play in relation to earnings um, and GDP. Um, I think it's important that we underline the relatively exceptional nature of the UK in that regard. Most other countries that have recovered following the financial crisis have started to see a recovery in living standards or have had a more consistent one over time. Clearly, that's not been the case with the UK. And in fact, real wages are still lower in the UK currently than they were at the time of the financial crisis. Um, private investment 
also much lower than one would expect when looked at in comparison with other countries. Um, and while it's, it's absolutely uh, right to note that income tax take is down, we've also, as with the nature of the state, we've seen a big change, of course, in the incidence of tax on different groups. Um, uh, very often, uh, we're informed in the House of Commons that the top 1% of people pay about a quarter of income tax. Well, yes, that's right. But when you look at taxation in the round, a relatively unusual situation in the UK, where according to the latest statistics, the top 10% of people by income are now paying less of their income in taxation than the bottom 10% are as a proportion of that income. So what do we need to do to deal with the kind of challenges that, that Robert, set, Robert set out and, and those issues as well? Well, I very much agree, first of all, with Robert's comments that well-respected sources of information and analysis, such as those provided by the OBR, have got to underpin any response. Any response has got to be evidence-based. But I would argue that government itself also needs to take more responsibility for transparency. Um, for example, transparency around the true incidence of taxation. So we've seen at recent budgets, it's been groups like the Child Poverty Action Group or the Women's Budget Group who've done the data crunching to work out what the incidence of tax and spending changes have been on different groups, particularly on women, single parents, etc. We believe that actually it should be government setting out some of that information and it indeed should be fundamental to the taking of decisions around taxation. Um, so we need to have government being more transparent there. And we think that would also help with some of the confusions that exist around the taxation system in the population. For example, the discussions that have occurred around inheritance tax. I mean, I'm sure all, you, all of you will be aware of this, but so often people that I talk to on the doorstep are not aware that only 4% of estates pay inheritance tax. Um, one of the most attested uh, taxes in the UK, and yet, uh, uh, well, obviously nobody living pays it, but only 4% of estates actually pay that tax. We need to have a more sensible discussion around these issues. And we do also need to be upfront about the long-term challenges for our tax system. I would argue that local taxation in particular is in a very difficult situation. Now, more and more emphasis in some local councils, um, all of the burden, actually, of financing being put on council tax and on business rates, um, not a reliable source of revenue, um, regressive in many cases, and having inefficient effects on business activity as well. Um, we think there needs to be a proper review of that local taxation so we can work out a better way forward, A, that will be fairer for people and businesses, but also B, that will deliver a more reliable income stream for local authorities. We also need to have a proper na national conversation around issues thrown up by the development of the gig economy and new forms of employment. Um, we've had disparate initiatives taken in relation to how we tax self-employment, for example, as relation to employed staff. We really need that to be an integrated debate about what people's working rights are as well, so that we can have a reform that is fully bought into by everyone and that doesn't appear just to be attacking the self-employed. We also need to have, of course, a longer term approach to budgeting and one which does have a more sensible approach to the impact of investments. And I think that's particularly important given the, the one issue, and I, I was very surprised because I've heard Robert speak very many times before and, and he's always very um, encompassing um, in what he mentions. But of course, the biggest challenge 
for uh, many of us also will be the climate crisis, and that is going to necessitate investment um, in uh, energy-saving technologies and renewables. That investment will have an industrial impact because it will create new jobs if it's done appropriately, um, but not doing so will also lead to major liabilities. And of course, there are many investment decisions being taken by public bodies which are not necessarily taking into account the impact of stranded assets and so forth. Um, but we need to be looking at all investment decisions within that rubric. You know, is it really sensible, for example, at the moment, that we are viewing uh, it necessary to still invest in diesel railway lines when we know that in the future there will have to be a transition to electric? But we also need to change the machinery of government to respond to this as well. Um, first of all, through having more appropriate investment rules. I know that, um, uh, Robert, you said that you felt it would be um, uh, not necessarily the time to look at completely new rules, but actually many countries are considering how they can better deal with investment within the context of those rules. And we set out a fiscal credibility rule, which does exactly that, which focuses on ensuring consumption spend is matched to revenue, um, but which doesn't drive down investment. Um, secondly, we need to look at whether the Green Book is appropriately calibrated. Currently, for example, it measures consumption today as more valuable than consumption in the future. Those assumptions need to be challenged. And we do need to consider how we can embed a longer-term approach within the budgeting process. We need to also, as another element of transparency, look more carefully at tax reliefs. You know, some analyses suggesting they could amount to as much as 40% of tax and non-tax revenue for government. Um, uh, we need to, uh, in our view, consider them much more within the framework of spending decision-making than has occurred until now. We're talking about potentially very large sums there. Um, and also we need to have the Treasury itself working much more closely with departments and in a less dictatorial way than it has done previously, not least with DHCLG, Bayes and the DWP. Um, arguably that would lead to a greater focus of, on incidents, again as I mentioned, and the impact of decisions on different regions, cities and groups. And then just finally to finish off, we have to have a much more internationalist approach to many of these matters. Um, uh, just as, as one example, in theory we have in the UK um, policy coherence for development, and yet we see still the UK concluding double tax agreements with some developing countries that deny them the ability to raise taxation at the very same time as our Department for International Development is providing them with funds. That needs to end. Um, we need to have a joined up approach and we also need to go beyond the BEPS process ultimately when it comes to corporate taxation. That process has been successful in many ways at dealing with some of the inconsistencies in definition and other matters, but we've got to confront the race to the bottom in corporate taxation. That means having hard conversations, but hopefully fruitful ones with other nations which share a similar view. And indeed, we started to do that um, in opposition and think it's very important. So I think that, those would be my, my first observations. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you very much indeed to the IFG for the invitation to, uh, to be here and to give me another reason to visit Carlton Gardens other than to attend the Boris Johnson launch, which is going on <laughs> down, the, uh, down the road. Um, happy 10th anniversary. Um, and uh, you all look very good for being, uh, for being 10. As, as Annalise says, hopefully many more decades to, uh, to, to come. 
Um, so, like Andy's, I'm going to offer a few reflections on what Robert has set out and then uh, give a Treasury uh, Select Committee perspective on the issue uh, that we are talking about, about revenue and uh, spending. And obviously, much of the focus um, is often around the near-term challenge of fiscal sustainability. And yet, the OBR's fiscal sustainability report shows that although public sector net debt is projected to fall from its medium-term peak of around 86% of GDP in 2017-18 to around 80% in 21-22, it is projected to rise steadily thereafter and reaching, and I would say in my own words, a staggering 283% of GDP in 2067-68. Um, I assume it won't get there, but that's quite a uh, trajectory for any future Chancellor to have to, to deal with. Now, in the long term, obviously, a key challenge for the government will be how it copes with the already existing pressures from demographic change, as we've already heard, particularly in relation to healthcare. Um, there are obviously further changes uh, to come, whilst at the same time uh, laying the foundations for future growth of productivity in the economy so that the government can continue to maintain and improve standards of healthcare and public services. Um, as Robert foretold, you know, boom and bust has not been abolished. The economic cycle is still there. Uh, and sadly, I suspect that we will be expecting a downturn before we're back here for the 20th birthday of the IFG. Now, Treasury officials um, told the committee that public sector net investment is now over 2% of GDP. It was a feature of the last spending review that although the resource spending or the day-to-day -day spending of departments' budgets reduced in real terms, capital infrastructure spending rose in real terms. And so it's going to be interesting to see, obviously, in the course of the next spending review, and we'll come on to that in a moment, uh, whether capital spending will rise uh, even further. Now, today, I think um, Prime Minister on her, is on her feet at the moment, but then there'll be a statement on net zero. Um, and, uh, of course, another long-term challenge is climate change. Um, in the spring statement, the Chancellor had stated that the government would consult on how to, and I quote, increase the proportion of green gas in the grid, helping to reduce dependence on burning natural gas in homes and businesses. So there's obviously a discussion going on, and we saw some of that in the uh, letter from the Chancellor to the Prime Minister that appeared in the National Press uh, last week. Uh, and so um, we wait to see, obviously, the impact of decarbonisation on the economy, and that's why the Treasury Select Committee launched our inquiry on exactly that topic uh, last week. Now, of course, while those long-term problems uh, simmer, political discussion will, of course, uh, centre only on the impact, as we've heard, of 10 years of spending reductions have had on areas such as local government, housing and prisons. And, of course, on these shorter-term pressures, the committee heard in our inquiry on the spring statement that the Chancellor might have some headroom in the next spending review to increase overall departmental spending. But it's, it seems unlikely, and I think the Chief Secretary of the Treasury has already said, that there's only about three departments where spending will be protected. So it seems unlikely that it's going to be good news all round for all departments. And the, the uh, Treasury officials told us uh, that it's likely that meeting fiscal targets will mean some department spending will continue to uh, fall. Um, Robert talked about institutions, um, and I think it's no doubt that, uh, in my mind, uh, the Treasury has not had a great Brexit so far. Um, number 10 number 11 need to work closely together, um, and I'm not sure that we have seen that uh, over the last uh, couple of years. The Treasury, for example, has made the case strongly in relation to listening to the voice of business, but frankly it took until after the general election for that to happen, and particularly in relation to financial services, which obviously is an area that my committee looks at uh, a lot. Um, so the delay in agreeing the withdrawal agreement means that the Chancellor is therefore going to have to, re well, 
we think probably, delay the spending review until next year. Now, much will depend on the timetable of the leadership contest that my party is currently uh, going through, um, but it seems like an awful lot, a uh, big demand on officials to have a new Prime Minister installed on the 22nd of July and to think that actually getting a full comprehensive spending review completed across government ready for an autumn budget with presumably a new Prime Minister and Chancellor using that spending review to set priorities. So does that mean a rollover then of spending effectively uh, for the next uh, financial year and really quite a frustrating lost opportunity. I was Secretary of State for Education in the last spending review and it was a really useful process for the department to go through to think about our priorities for the next uh, spending period. Um, and of course we're still waiting for the government's social care paper to be published. We've waiting a long time, it's been ready for a long time, um, and it might well have been published as part of the spending review process. Now, Robert talked about um, tanks on lawns and budget uh, committee, uh, and what's the role of the Treasury Set uh, Committee in holding the government to account for addressing the issues that we're looking at uh, today. Well, I think that Parliament has and will always have a critical role in holding the government to account for how it's addressing long-term spending challenges. We hold as a committee an inquiry into each fiscal event and one of our key conclusions in our report in 2018 budget was that the fiscal objective to pursue a balanced budget is not one that the government appears to be seriously pursuing and should therefore be replaced or the government should at least explain what its intention is in relation uh, to that objective. And then for the spring statement, we held evidence sessions with the Treasury, the OBR, economic think tanks. Um, I think Gemma has had the, um, I want to say, misfortune or the luck to appear in front of the Treasury Select Committee on more than one uh, occasion. And obviously we heard uh, from the, uh, the, the Chancellor. Um, so we have explored um, some of the long-term pressures and the issues um, in relation to the, the tax uh, burden. Um, there is a debate about having a budget uh, committee. Um, my own preference actually is that we should try to get the departmental select committees to look more closely into the departmental budgets. Again, when I was education secretary, I can't remember being quizzed by the education select committee in any great depth about the decisions on, uh, that I was making around spending review submissions, or Tim's nodding, so I think he agrees with me. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but, but you know, um, I can't remember. Uh, having uh, that scrutiny uh, and I think it'd be very difficult, very difficult for politicians sitting on a budget committee not to tip over into policy questions rather than just looking at the finances. So I do have some scepticism about a budget committee, although I think it's fair to say when I gave evidence to the procedure committee there's no doubt that the estimates process does not work as well as I think it should do. The other question I was asked to address was how can politicians build support around the country for necessary policies and how can future minority governments build support in Parliament for these. Um, now, uh, I was speaking at a policy exchange event last night with Nick McPherson, the former Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, and he was calling for more honesty in a lot of these debates. And I think, of course, he is absolutely right. We know there are some long-term issues, particularly in relation to demographic pressure, particularly in relation, I would say, to social care, where, frankly, we are only going to be able to make the changes necessary if we get cross-party political agreement. And I know that will be hard to do. One of the things about having minority governments, potentially, if it involves a coalition rather than a confidence and supply agreement, is actually, as we saw in 2010, you do have to take the time to hammer out positions on those issues. And we have seen in relation to the auto-enrolment of pensions, where actually a longer-term approach, successive governments taking what their predecessors have done and perhaps building and improving on them with working with industry, has actually made a dramatic uh, difference. 
Um, in terms of public spending being managed um, or public intervention being targeted more effectively to achieve more with less, well, um, in our evidence, uh, we started on the comprehensive spending review asking questions when Treasury officials gave us evidence in relation to the spring statement. And they said that apparently the CSR is going to be more outcome-focused, greater focus on delivery, and greater joint working between departments on cross-cutting issues. I think this is absolutely critical. And I think, you know, whether we'll get on to discuss it or not, but I think one of the frustrations that... Uh, dare I say, ordinary people have about the way that Whitehall works, is they do not live their lives in silos. You know, if they've got a child with a mental health issue, they don't want to know that there's an argument between the DfE and the Department of Health, or between the school and the local CCG. They just want that issue addressed and a joint budget to be found and to work. Um, is UK tax policy up to the job? Um, I agree, actually, with much of what um, Annalise said. We conduct an inquiry at the moment into uh, business rates. There's no doubt uh, that um, the impact of uh, online businesses, particularly retail businesses, is having um, on the, um, uh, the raising of, of business rates. The fact, and actually what comes across is it is the level of business rates now that's causing problems for many businesses, but it's also the perception of unfairness. And again, I think if we are beginning to lose that argument that our tax system, it might well be very efficient, it might well mean that actually most people are paying their taxes, but if people feel it's unfair, you begin to lose that public permission. And there's no doubt that many, many businesses, particularly retail businesses, do feel that the business rate system is somehow unfair. And if you've got to go to the extent of offering all those reliefs, then that alone should tell you that the system isn't uh, working. Um, so, just to conclude, I mean, I think we have seen um, that the tax system is, is under um, uh, strain. Um, rollout of the IR35 uh, reforms um, and the Chancellor's unsuccessful attempts to reform national insurance contribution. Uh, and I think that's one of the things where actually attempts to reform are made. So, tax reform, if I say it quickly, sounds easy, but I suspect that people in this room would know that it would be anything but and would lead to a whole other layer of... Um, well, people will worry about complexity, but also a whole other level of lobbying and reasons why this should be reformed and that shouldn't be reformed and everything else. But I do think potentially in the political situation we found ourselves over the course of the last 10 years, the political situation has changed enormously in this country. The way that people communicate with their politicians, the way that people communicate with their select committees, uh, for example, I would argue that the select committee system is one of the few functioning bits of parliament at the moment uh, in terms of getting evidence, putting out reports and everything else. Getting a government response back and making something happen is, of course, still uh, always a bit of a challenge. But people do expect people in Westminster and Whitehall to listen and to reform. And it's not enough anymore just to say, I'm sorry, it's all too complicated. And I've no doubt that the IFG over the course of the next 10 years will also be telling us exactly what we need to do to make sure that we keep all of our systems, including our tax system, up to date. Thank you. very much um, for your comments and for sticking so closely to your brief, which is always fantastic. Um, Very obedient, really. <laughs> um, before I open up to questions from the floor, I just wanted to pose a few of my own. Um, so picking up on the point that Robert made, that we are at a point where actually it feels like there is no fiscal rule that is guiding government policy at the moment. Mm. The statement to get to a balanced budget by the early 2020s doesn't seem to be guiding policy at the moment. Um, and given the sort of new academic arguments that Robert was saying are being put forward, perhaps we don't need to worry so much about government borrowing levels. Perhaps government can just print money um, and pay for things that way. Um, what are your reflections on, on what's the appropriate set of fiscal rules for the UK going forward, given these medium-term challenges? Is it enough 
to simply have debt falling, as seems to have been part of the debate going mm -hmm. on with Tory leadership candidates at the moment? What are the sort of pros and cons for fiscal rules for the next period? Well, I think they have to be some, for a start, and I think you're absolutely right, they have to be communicated. Um, and there is a bit at the moment where there's been a bit of drift, um, and I think that over the last three years we know why there's been drift, but I don't think it's good enough to have had it. I mean, I personally think that um, we must continue to get the debt down, and we're actually we're, we're just about beginning to see uh, that, is, that is happening, I and mean, obviously the deficit has been um, you know, dramatically reduced. Um, and I think Robert's right to use the word austerity fatigue. I think out in the country there is absolutely, but there is also an understanding still uh, that we, um, we've got this big debt, we are very vulnerable if interest rates or if we suddenly um, ended up as a country where people are more nervous about lending to us, uh, that actually it suddenly could become a lot more expensive. And when you say that the cost of our interest uh, was at one stage, um, I can't remember the exact number now, Robert might have it, was more than the whole you know, was DfE budget, um, you know, that's quite extraordinary for people. But there is no doubt there is, a, there is an argument to be, to be won, I think both in, in Parliament and I think there's definitely an appetite for more, more fiscal loosening, and I think that you know, education spending is one. But uh, I would hope very much that any future Conservative Prime Minister is not going to take the brakes off completely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because some of these arguments are very new, but some of them are very old mm. as well. I mean, we'll all remember the golden rule and all the discussions around that, um, which, you know, from my point of view, was, was a sensible approach. I mean, it was a shame that we had the global financial crisis that obviously prevented us seeing whether that would, that would have been successful. I mean, I, I'm quite confident that it would have been. Um, I do think it's important that we look at these rules um, from the perspective of not choking off long-term growth and particularly improving product productivity. I mean, we're in a situation currently, I think, where there's been you know, quite a, a short-term perspective when there have been fiscal rules invoked that hasn't been helpful. I mean, one example, I'm sure that everybody in this room is sick of hearing this, but it really does does bear repeating because it just constantly hits you in the face as a, as a politician. Um, you look at the amount of money that we spend subsidising in practice housing provided through the private sector, um, through housing benefit now rolled into universal credit, huge amount of money, amount of money that's actually been increasing pretty substantially since the 1980s. And you compare that to what could be done through proper investments in social housing and council housing actually over the long run would save a lot of money compared to that big consumption that you have to spend money on currently. So that does mean there's got to be a new approach to investment, I think. So that does mean we've got to reform that rule. Um, and, and just finally, kind of reflecting on um, what Robert was mentioning around some of the discussions on the left, I think we've got to kind of disaggregate some of that, haven't we? Because um, uh, there's kind of some people who say, oh, well, you know, you could just use... Um, uh, QE for so-called helicopter money, as they would put it, and just use that for spending. I think, uh, from my point of view, there's a, there's a subtle debate about actually whether um, uh, uh, you, you could uh, focus on you know, some of the work that the bank has been doing, and indeed the European Central Bank as well, about whether um, that QE has been focused on the kind of investment then that would be productive and would be promoting sustainable development. I think that's, that, that, that's a different argument, but it's one that we need to have. And I think it's, it's quite a productive argument, actually. I think it's, it's quite a good one to, to have and um, maybe one that doesn't get you quite into some of the, um, the more blue skies thinking, shall we say, that, that it is around at the moment. Yeah. Uh, 
Parliament has perhaps very sensibly said that we should not advise on what the rules are, but merely police the ones that are there. But I think there's a, there's a, couple, a couple of general points in the design that are important. One, obviously, is thinking about the time horizon over which you're looking. I mean, it's striking at the moment, and obviously this is an unusual few days in the political process, that there's a lot of focus on, you know, 26 billion is available in a target at a two-year time horizon. Well, clearly, the sorts of decisions you're going to take over a spending review the sorts of decisions you want to make about what your broad fiscal strategy and extend over a longer period than that. There is clearly a, a difficulty ahead of knowing the nature of the exit from the EU as to trying to put something in place that is consistent with both a deal and no deal outcome is clearly pretty challenging to do. Um, but I think a general point in this is an, is an observation based on having seen them operate in the past is that when you set these rules, obviously the idea is that you're trying to, to set out a credible picture of what you're aiming to do and how you might therefore respond if things turn out differently. But you have to recognise with these rules that there is always an enormous amount of uncertainty around both revenues and spending over a one, two, three, four, five year horizon. And simultaneously coming up with a coherent set of uh, relatively well-defined objectives that you can be judged against while simultaneously recognising uh, appropriately the uncertainty that's around this is not a straightforward thing to do. The other thing which is striking again, and I wouldn't have guessed this before starting the job and having gone through the succession of, of forecasts and, and analyses of government budgets and, and, uh, and fiscal events, is that in practice it's not the formal rule necessarily that guides the precise content of budgets and fiscal... It's, it's often the thing that you boast about in your previous statement as being on course to achieve. So you may have a rule, but then the fact that you've... Uh, you know, we had this uh, when George was Chancellor, that there was a 10 billion margin that you are going to aim to achieve and then of course the objective becomes to ensure that it must be 10 yeah. and not 9.9 .9, but maybe 10.1 which is of course completely at odds with the fiscal and statistical sensitivities at that level. So from part of our job is in it, we have a formal responsibility to say is the government on course to hit its fiscal rules. I think as part of our transparency role we also have to explain why it is that the government appears to have taken the decisions that it does, and it can often be for informal f uh, fiscal objectives as well as formal ones. That's my second question. Um, to pick up on something um, I think both Anne-Lisa and Nikki touched on, um, around the degree of sort of understanding and scrutiny, particularly on the tax policy side. So it's something that I've pointed out for many years is the relative lack of scrutiny of existing tax policies and new tax policies coming down the line. And I wonder whether you think there is more need to make sure we end up with more effective tax policies for more scrutiny, perhaps through a parliamentary budget office, as Robert alluded to, to increase capacity there and perhaps increase, Annalisa, you were talking about the sort of understanding and transparency about what the tax system currently does. Do you think that would be useful or do you think there are other ways of improving the quality of debate and the sort of the scrutiny of the status quo in this area. Yeah, I mean, I feel part of this is about having that data out in the open, actually, a lot of the time. Um, and particularly about, often, how tax then relates to spending decisions also. I mean, one um, uh, issue that actually I've discussed with some people in this room is around, for example, how tax 
decisions interact with benefit decisions and vice versa. And there seems to be, sadly, a low understanding of that, even within government sometimes, um, you know, let alone within the general public until they're caught by it. And suddenly it's a massive, massive issue in the case of personal budgets, for example, for, for social care, etc. Um, so I think there needs to be more openness and that will involve governments being willing to look at the impact of measures in the round on different types of people living in different areas in different circumstances. And, you know, the DWP does do a fair amount of that actually itself in terms of its decisions and its modelling. But we haven't seen the Treasury doing that to the same extent. I think it does need to start doing that. I think that might engender some of that debate and discussion. Um, in terms of other parliamentary mechanisms, I mean, I agreed with what Nikki said about the estimates process and that not necessarily working very well. Um, uh, and, you know, all power to her committee in, in, in the future. Um, but I think in, in terms of, I suppose, looking at it from the government side, I think that openness would be very helpful. I mean, one thing that, that, that kind of uh, keeps me puzzling is that I think we've got into this situation where the budget in particular is such a theatrical occasion and has been for such a long time that, you know, how will it be possible for politicians of whatever stripe to resist pulling lots of rabbits out of the hats and having the focus on those rabbits, which, you know, pretty soon lose their fur because everyone discovers they've not been properly thought through, um, as against using it as an opportunity to actually look at the overall incidence of tax, how that's changing, who's being affected by it, etc. Because really it is a revenue event and then comprehensive spending review should be the, the spending events, but we're very far away from that currently. So I think there's a few things there. I mean, um, so th there's no doubt that I think a, a, a beefed up parliamentary budget office um, might well be a, a very good idea. And I think, so obviously parliamentary scrutiny works and you know, the people on select committees are politicians. So uh, you might or might not be fortunate against somebody who's got a tax background who understands a lot of the details. Whereas in the way we have the scrutiny unit, potentially having people, whether it's in a specific budget office or, you know, a, again, a beefed up scrutiny unit with people who've got specific tax expertise to advise uh, on that. And the scrutiny unit at the moment is really only used by the, or relevant, or can be called upon by the select committees, not by members of the parliament, um, unlike the House of Commons Library, which does a fantastic job. But I mean, they are trying to look after 650 people and often particularly the shadow front bench will inevitably have to uh, rely on them. So I do think in terms of tax, outside scrutiny is absolutely vital. And actually, I think picking up on Alice's point as well, I mean, you're right about um, the way things interact. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it might be that officials have, have picked that up, but sometimes not. And the people outside who know the particular sector or whatever is, I'm thinking about things like the pension limits and the impact that's had on the NHS and the, the senior consultants. And that's actually, um, it's partly about the, the, the numbers, as it were, but it's also about a behavioural response. And I don't know. Um, I mean, we've asked the Chancellor about it uh, at briefly. Um, I'm sure we will return to it. But it would be very interesting to know what analysis was done in government about not just, the, as I say, the, the, the financial impact of that, but the likely behavioural response. I suspect not much, because that's not where civil service would see themselves with an expertise to second guess how people are going to, uh, to respond. Um, so there's definitely a role. And, and I think the, the point about uh, a budget would not be the right place to uh, take your point about rabbits out of hats. Um, I think all chancellors love the fact, you know, it's their day and, 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 and everything else. But if you're going to do some sort of tax commission, it would have to be something set up, I think, separately with government involvement, with cross party, with outside expertise. Um, if we're going to do this properly. But I think it, it does, I mean, I, my, one of my reflections on the Treasury Set Committee has been um, 
that the tax system is clearly creaking at the edges. Uh, we do have a good tax system in the sense that we collect money, we get it in, we're spending it, um, but there's no doubt as the workplace is changing, as businesses are changing, we are going to have to keep look at how we keep up to date with this. Robert, perhaps I can ask a similar question to you, because often people would point to the OBR as being an obvious place to do more of this sort of thing. Is it for the OBR to do that, or do you think a, a separate independent body could play a sort of useful role in this space? Well, I think on the, ta on the tax, it's interesting you, you start off on the tax side. I mean, there, I mean, obviously, one thing that has happened is we've gone back, we're once again pushing the ball up the hill mm. in the we've now got a single fiscal event and therefore yep. there's another event, which is the opportunity to be more, you know, to have more things out for consultation, more yes. broader strategic discussion. That has been tried, not, it hasn't lasted before. We will wait to see, mm. you know, obviously now it's particularly difficult because the the timetabling exactly. of knowing what is the you know What's the event at which you can make a yeah. big set of decisions is not clear. So you have that that challenge there. Um, on the the budget committee, I mean it's interesting uh, because most people's focus would be that that would be concerned primarily with spending rather than tax. Mm, yeah. And interestingly, and I think the evidence to the procedure committee, some people's worry is that it would be focused on spending prior to tax. But one of the arguably one of the virtues of having having that and a parliamentary budget office is that you're providing scrutiny in a forward-looking way of spending within the departmental expenditure limits, so public services, administration, grants, capital spending, which we don't provide in the same way that we do for tax measures because at the end of the day it's our job to basically forecast how much is going to be spent, not whether it's being spent in the right places and on the right things, and in, and in reaching a forecast for departmental expenditure limits, we look at the overall limit that the Treasury sets and say, by how much is this going to be underspent? It's not a bottom-up process in the way that the way we look at tax receipts or welfare spending would be. So one argument for your beefed-up scrutiny unit and a budget committee would be that you provide more of that forward-looking examination yeah. on the spending side that the PAC and the NAO provide in a backward-looking yeah, exactly, way yeah. and that that may be where the where the area is is missing I think again in terms of um, there are countries that combine the two elements mm. and there have been some countries that have thought I mean the Australians if Labour had won in Australia they were starting with a parliamentary budget office and would have moved it more in our direction in terms of bringing a forecast function in as well. In Ireland, uh, there is a separate fiscal watchdog and a separate parliamentary budget office. I'm on the, I chair the advisory committee for the parliamentary budget office bit of it. That's in very early stages at the moment, but for them, it seems sensible to have the two. Clearly, one important distinction with, with, if you have a parliamentary budget office, as Nikki was saying, is do you want it like us? to be providing scrutiny, and like the PAC, mm -hmm. to providing scrutiny of the government's policy, mm. or do you want it to be a resource that parliamentarians, yeah. committees, and, you know, uh, and, you know, there's a separate issue around election platforms, but do you want it to be a broader resource set? So the Australian Parliamentary Budget Office is costing proposals from, from around Parliament uh, the Congressional Budget Office in the US is more committee focused but looks at both sides of the, of the political uh, divide as well. So I think in thinking about you know, what role a, a beefed up scrutiny unit could or should play, uh, that question is quite important. And that I think one of the challenges 
you know, if it's involved in the tax side, the areas that we're on the welfare side as well, is that is it realistic to give it enough resources to have all the expertise to be able to do that in-house, or do you want it to be drawing on the expertise within Revenue and Customs and DWP? If you do, then the poor analysts in those bumps, yeah. in addition to having to yeah. deal with us coming along yeah. and you know basically getting them to crank handles and, and answer lots of impertinent <coughs> questions, are going to have another body to do it for as well. So. It's quite a complicated set of decisions, and I think the key thing, obviously, is to look at this in the round. What are the roles of the Treasury Committee, yep. the PAC, and a potential new Budget Committee, and what is the, the resourcing and support for that? Partly us, partly a beefed-up scrutiny unit, stroke Parliamentary Budget Office, uh, and you, then you have the NAO, obviously, supporting um, the PAC. <coughs> questions from all of you. Um, if you could say who you are um, when you ask your question, and if you are in the other room, please do stick your head around the door to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so start with uh, Larry there. I'll take a couple of questions together and then which one's um, Larry Honeyset, Head of Financial Scrutiny, Scrutiny Unit, House of Commons. Um, <laughs> I just thought I'd ask uh, the panel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I'd ask the panel um, how they thought perhaps the, scrutiny, the um, spending review process could be opened up more in the future. I mean, I'm very conscious that the last couple of major spending reviews have been done very rapidly and behind closed doors with very little input from outsiders. Um, the outcome may be looked at by select committees, Treasury Committee, etc. But there's not very much going on during the process or perhaps before the process. And could you think of ways and perhaps in which that whole um, process of, of spending decisions could be made more transparent? Um, and perhaps even the idea of draft spending reviews that perhaps committees could look at and comment on before they were finalised? Um, yes, Martin Wheatcroft. I'm a chartered accountant and advisor on public finances. Um, my question was uh, around the long-term fiscal strategy. You've all talked about the long-term as well as the short-term. Um, and whether we should uh, think about our current underlying assumption of a pay-as-you-go uh, tax and spending system. Uh, we currently have unfunded state pension system, unfunded social care system, unfunded retiree health care system, unfunded public sector pension system in most cases. Um, should we think about whether we fund them? Uh, George Crozier from the Chartered Institute of Taxation. Um, I was going to ask about parliamentary scrutiny on tax, but I think we've covered that a bit. So I'm going to move it on to parliamentary powers on tax. Um, it strikes me that Parliament actually has very limited powers on tax matters. Um, I mean, the you know, House of Lords has no powers, but even within the Commons, you, know, you need money resolutions to be able to table anything meaningful. Um, the finance bill has always been fairly restrictive in terms of what could be tell you what it's become even more restrictive. Um, do the panelists think this is a good state of affairs or should we be uh, looking to strengthen Parliament in, well, at one extreme, the direction of uh, you know, America's Congress? One on opening up the spending review process, one on should we reconsider our pay-as-you-go system, and then parliamentary powers on tax. Who would like to kick off? 
Alice, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I mean, br brilliant questions. Just, mm. just kind of quickly on on each one. Um, uh, first of all, I think I think there is a lot of concern around the process. Um, also within government, um, because often departments have felt that the treasurer has been quite um, uh, domineering within this process. So we have been thinking as a shadow treasury team, how could we be more open around this? Um, how could there be more parliamentary scrutiny? But also, how could we have a better relationship with those other actors who actually deliver a lot of um, public spending? I mean, a, a good case in point would be around local governments. I mean, how you achieve that in practice, I think, is very challenging, particularly in a context where we've got a very, very complex local government environment now of all kind of different shapes and sizes. Some of them very, very small, some of them very, very large, but we are actively considering how we could have a more open process and one which does take those other views much more into, into account. Um, uh, interesting question about pay as you go. I mean, I suppose the, the one alternative to that would be to say, well, I mean, using the analogy of pensions overall would be to say, well, the other option is to build up your assets, uh, which you then use to, to pay for these things. The problem is you've got to build up the asset first, mm. and that can take quite a long time. Um, but there have been attempts to do that, of course, in a whole range of different countries. Some of them have been very, very successful. Um, of course, in political discourse, the one that's very often mentioned has been around um, the oil industry and taxation in, in relation to it. Um, but uh, clearly, most countries that started to do that started quite a long time ago, um, and, and we haven't. Um, it is something uh, uh, I think that's very important um, to look at, but in terms of paying for consumption, I think you're probably... Uh, ahead of where a lot of the, the, the politicians are uh, currently on, on that issue and thinking through these matters. Um, and then finally, are Parliament's powers too limited? Um, you won't be surprised to hear me say, and we've had this discussion before, that I think they are too limited. Um, it's effectively, over the last few finance bills, it has been impossible to amend anything in a way that has an impact on revenue or spending. So, um, in all practical terms, that means that we've only been able to ask for reviews of different measures, um, which is very, very limited. Actually, government has resisted in just about every case, even doing that, which has been a bit of a frustration for us, but maybe to be uh, expected given our, um, our political system. Um, I think it would be helpful to have a more open approach to these things, because ultimately, you know, governments do not always get everything right. And actually, it is important to listen to those clarion calls where there are problems with taxation measures. Um, so I, I think we do need to have a more open approach around this and certainly we'll keep arguing for that. Yeah. Just before I turn to Robert and Nikki, I should have said uh, at the start, Annalisa unfortunately has to rush off at quarter two to get back to the house. Um, so she did give her apologies. She's not just bored and running off. Nikki, do you want yeah. to? So and the way the first and the, the th third questions are um, sort of related, which is obviously what well, they are, the powers of parliament. Um, and, you know, we spend a lot of time, because of the current political situation, discussing our constitution. And I think we have to think about the constitutional settlement we have in this country. And the, um, so we think about it quite a lot, the role of the select committees, uh, in terms of the scrutiny of parliament. At what point do you step over from scrutiny um, or asking factual questions of the regulators to trying to second guess what the government is doing um, or even proposing your own legislation? You know, today we're going to see another... Um, obviously uh, attempt opposition, backbench conservatives, you know, other opposition parties saying Parliament's going to take over the legislative timetable 
um, or the business of the house on a particular day, and that is unprecedented. It, it may be the way that we are going. It may be because of a frustration. Um, and I suppose, um, I mean, Annalise is right. I, I, I understand completely where she's coming from as an opposition MP. Um, you know, I can tell you as a former Treasury Minister and Government Minister, actually, you'd want to keep Parliament as far away. And I, and I have this funny hat on sometimes where I can see both sides of the, of the argument, having been on one side and now on the, on the other. Um, in terms of departmental select committees, oh, well, so in terms of the spending review process, I mean, I think it's where the departmental select committees could be asking a lot more questions and could be at this stage saying to their secretaries of state, when you come before us, what are you asking the Treasury for? Um, what are your priorities? Um, it will make very uncomfortable um, sessions for the ministers and for the officials, but you know, is that a bad thing? Um, the Treasury's role in all this is to say no most of the time. Um, and so, actually, a sensible department might try to um, uh, use the, um, the desire for more public scrutiny of their spending review bids in a way to, to lift things up. You know, certainly otherwise you end up relying very much on the Prime Minister and Number 10 often to come in behind you to say, actually, to the Treasury, um, I, I know the answer should be no, but actually the answer is going to be yes, and that's clearly what the Prime Minister did with the NHS settlement and what she's done with the net zero uh, today. Um, so, and the other thing is, I mean, I take your point about in the finance bills, nothing being amended. Of course, if you get political attention, political momentum for something, as we saw with the issue around the register, the beneficial um, ownership registers, uh, you can create a coalition, particularly a minority situation, and you can get changed to, to bills. Just fine in terms of long-term fiscal. Um, I mean, very interesting. So, we obviously are waiting for the social care green paper, and that will be an obvious place to, to be asking those questions. I don't know what's going to be proposed. People have believed in the past, and they've put national insurance into the national insurance fund. That's going to pay for their future, as we know it's not. It's an issue about the Treasury not liking hypothecated taxes and, and pots of money. I think you know it would require a different approach, and we would have to say we're going to start a different approach for the under-21s or something. Again, it would require long-term change. You know, if you're going to do it for pensions, you'd have to say, right, anybody born from X date you know, is going to have to, to prepare for their old age or social care costs in a completely different way from the way that our current 50- and 60-year-olds are going to, going to do. I don't think it should be dismissed, but it would be a very different system. And again, the perceptions of fairness and intergenerational. However, today's millennials are, uh, they do understand, I think, in terms of like paying for student uh, fees, they understand uh, that the world has changed and, and, and the numbers have changed. Uh, well, I think that, I mean, Larry's question highlights, I mean, the, mm. the, partly on Annalisa's point, the difference between the, the theatre around the budget and what should, in a sense, be a far more consequential, less frequent event in which you're talking about the size and shape of the state over, over that period. In terms of... Oh, nice to see. In terms of... <laughs> This, no, often, this, often, really this often happens when I start off. Clearly an important issue here is, the t is, the, is what's the timetable for these spending review issues. So obviously at one level it helps if you are in a world where the envelope, the amount of money that there is in play in aggregate is set out first and then you have a debate around the allocation of that because then I think there's it's easier to have a more meaningful discussion of the trade-offs rather than uh, a, an open participative process yeah. conducted through a budget committee or otherwise which is just a whole list of people saying well we think we ought to spend more money on this exactly. you know if, if you could have that openness of discussion in a way that sort of brought trade-offs to the fore uh, uh, as well as the sort of as I say the shopping list that people come over that would be uh, a good and helpful uh, thing 
as you say, in a sense, there's, uh, and I don't have a direct experience of this, but my sense is that there is, you know, there's quite a lot of difference in the degree to which departmental select committees take this scrutiny of the sort of overall budget yep. and the within department allocational uh, decisions. Now, you know, some people would say that a budget committee was a way of sort of imposing, you know, a framework yep. on that. But do you need a budget committee to do that? Could be the liaison uh, committee, you know, and yep. if you did that, would that actually relax the pressure on the select committee, on the departmental mm -hmm. committees to mm -hmm. do more? So it's, it's, an, it's an interesting area. Um, I mean, as you, as you say, the, 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 the treasury attitude more broadly, and clearly, in, if you compare the UK with most other countries, across budget setting as a whole, in the UK, the executive is powerful relative to parliament, yeah. and normally the treasury is powerful relative to the rest of the executive, although that can vary yeah. uh, uh, in uh, different circumstances. And, you know, clearly there is a different appetite from different people to having an open participative discussion there. I think it's interesting, if you, the OECD did a review of the Irish mm. budget system, uh, out of which came the proposal that they should have a parliamentary budget office. And if you looked through the, what the OECD saw as the weaknesses of the Irish parliamentary system, i.e. lack of opportunity for civil society and parliament to influence before decisions taking, I imagine the Treasury looked through that and says, these are all the strengths of the UK <laughs> system. <laughs> and, you know, uh, generally speaking, there's only one thing worse than an over-mighty Treasury, and that's an under-mighty yeah. one, uh, and that, that should be, uh, that should be uh, borne in mind. Um, on the the long term the long term issues, yes, uh, I think the the importance of looking over the long horizon and thinking carefully about the consequences of decisions that you take today that look good over five years but have a very different impact over twenty to fifty is absolutely central. As Annalisa was, I think, hinting at, I mean, one of the challenges of actually moving to a formal process of funding these things is that you have a generation that is paying for current spending and also putting the money in for the funding so how do you get around that transition you know it's, it's easier to be at one end of the spectrum or the other it's quite hard to get from one one end of it uh, to the other as well so I think that that's a uh, that's a concern that, that comes in there but 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 keeping that long-term focus uh, and thinking about the the, the trade-offs there and obviously with with the long-term health position, certainly from our reports, and, and uh, when you're looking for the explanation of the big potential rise in the debt-to-GDP ratio, it's around an assumption, uh, which polit politicians at the end of the day will have to decide whether or not to ratify, that over time you're going to look to spend a higher proportion of GDP on health, and presumably there has to be some tax response to that. So making those decisions you know, is as important as thinking about whether you're formally funding it or hypothecating it. The Treasury is, as you say, generally wary of hypothecation, and you only need look at, you know, the, B the BBC licence fee as an example of the pressure that any hypothecated source of revenue comes under. It's now paying for welfare policy and foreign policy as well as domestic broadcasting, so uh, you can see where these pressures lead. So one point that came up in the opening uh, 
presentation this morning was around the need for policy making to be different in a world where globalisation and technology may mean that government policy needs to ensure that those gains are distributed more evenly mm. and perhaps where there's a greater need to address regional differences yeah. around the country and the trade-off between central control and regional decision making. Um, I wonder if you have any reflections on how the, our systems for managing revenues and spending need to adapt in the, in the face of those challenges. I do think, I mean, so one of those questions we've asked as a select committee, um, I think we've probably asked it to um, the OBR, but also certainly to the, the Chancellor, has been around the way that policy making takes into account different regional imbalances. Um, and I think we know, again, the wider political situation, there are many parts of the country that feel that London gets a disproportionate amount of uh, spend, um, investment, particularly around infrastructure, London South East, um, and other places are missing out. Um, and I think in terms of the wider political environment, that the government is going to have to think very seriously. So you know, we will continue, I think, to, to, to press on this issue of exactly you know, what regional analysis is, is carried out. I mean, you know, Annelies was right to, to talk about, um, we've done quite a lot of work with the Women's Budget Group and thinking about the way that fiscal events, particularly budgets, think about uh, the, the, um, the impact on women. Um, I'd like to see potentially in you know, future budget documents a much greater, you know, we have that picture, don't we, of the country and it's all about infrastructure investment, um, uh, but I think not every infrastructure investment is the same uh, in terms of the, the benefits or the, or the perceptions, um, and so I think a much greater uh, understanding of how um, the impacts on different regions are factored into policy making and submissions that go to ministers. Robert, I'm sure you're not going to comment on policy making, but do you, how much do these regional and other trends affect your sort of questions that you have to ask yourself when you're doing the fiscal and economic forecasting? And they, the well, they, they, do to, they do to a degree, although at the end of the day, we're tasked with forecasting the public finances at, a, at an economy-wide level. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting question here about yeah. what you expect the Treasury to produce in this area, because we had a period when there was quite a lot of distributional analysis, it then went away, it then came back a bit. Uh, whether there's a sort of shared view between Parliament and Treasury as to what sort of distributional analysis should be produced and what's, and I use distributionally broadly, I mean clearly you could do it by income, region, uh, et cetera, is important. I think another, coming back to your, your previous question, uh, one area where uh, you've got a challenge in the, in, the, in the budget setting process within the UK is the complexity of the interaction between what's done at the UK level and in devolved yeah. mm. administrations where you've had both the Scottish government and the Welsh government thinking about how they put in place their budget timetables which tends to be of a more draft than final variety than is the than is the UK one, but then worrying about, well, we need to have the UK budget first before we know the basis upon which we can take our decisions. And that's getting quite tangled. And as more things are devolved, it gets that much more so. So I think, again, if you're, one is thinking about what's the right UK budget timetable or timetable for fiscal decision-making, it's important to have a conversation with the devolved administrations that you can come up with something that kind of works for everybody mm. rather than people having to sort of shoehorn decisions into the end of December because that's the point, the only point at which you know what the UK government will have done. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's a set of complexities around the practicality of dividing. And of course, the more the devolved administrations choose to diverge from 
the policy settings at the UK level, the more you have to not necessarily worry, but take into account the fact that that will affect people's behaviour because you may be taxing an income yeah. at a different rate in Scotland or Wales from the, from the rest of the UK. We obviously saw this come up for the first time with the mm. proposals around income tax changes when obviously pointed out that Scottish income tax yeah. is a devolved matter yeah. um, and that has yeah. uh, different impacts. Um, Nikki, we similarly in the opening presentation this morning, we had a politician um, talking in terms that I don't think you would see UK politicians talking about the really hard trade-offs, there is no free lunch, yeah. how do we pay for long-term care mm. um, health spending. Um, it doesn't seem, certainly with the current um, Conservative leadership debates, um, that <laughs> those They're following that path, yeah. <laughs> things are really uh, front and centre in our political debate. How do you, how, is there a way that we can get uh, the political debate in the UK into that more realistic sphere about the longer term challenges? Well, I would hope so. Um, I mean, I do think, uh, as I was saying, you know, uh, Nick, the first one saying last night, we need a more honest conversation. I mean, I think it depends on the on the character of the of the minister making the proposal. Um, I mean, I always found actually that when you go around the country, you're able to have a much more sensible conversation uh, with people. And when you explain the trade-offs, so in terms of education policy, you know, when I explained well, this is why this has been done, and you know, whether it was with teachers or pupils or parents or governors who weren't keen on it, but when you explain why. Um, then people at least understand, even if they don't necessarily agree or they might have made uh, different choices. The difficulty is trying to have that debate at a national level. Um, I actually think there's much more, I don't know if you touched on this this morning, I think that um, a talented politicians can harness social media much more to do that, potentially. Um, and I'm not sure that we, we do. Um, you know, what was it? Was it FDR who did the, the fireside chats? You know, we, maybe we need to go back... Uh, to that um, uh, as well, to be to be more. Because I, I do think that you know, one of the reasons where you know the, the last couple of years has been so difficult is because there wasn't a, a, a realistic uh, conversation with the country about how complex unraveling our relationship with the EU was going to be. It wasn't saying it's not going to happen, but it was saying it, it is happening. It's going to take time. Here are the complexities. Um, but I, I, you know, I, my government, whatever is, is intent on on doing it. Um, you know, politicians shouldn't blame the media, but there's no doubt a lot of the coverage um, tends to uh, go for the headline, um, and it's uh, it's quite rare that you get a chance long enough in an interview or a question time slot or whatever to really uh, you know to pick apart um, again why you're doing something. So that's why I think it, it is incumbent. If, if if we were to change that style, which I hope we can, we'd have to use the tools at our own disposal rather than relying on other people to carry those messages. I mean, Robert, do you sort of, 10 years on from the OBR, not, not quite 10 years on from the OBR coming into existence, do you think the OBR's existence has helped to shift the debate a bit, or do you think there's more that could be done from your transparency side? Um, I think that, I mean, I've always maintained ever since we, we started underway that, that this, the transparency, you know, I'd love to promise that the forecasts will be more accurate on average than they, than they have been or they were under the previous regime and you know to date actually that is true but we've mm. not forecast through a recession yet when of course it gets uh, a much more uh, complicated to do that but it is it's the transparency that is actually where you can add the value so the mm. more we can do about actually presenting more information about the public finances and particularly there I would say you know we've we've done more on the uncertainty that lies around uh, 
any central view because you know you shouldn't just be setting policy on the basis of a central view but how you would respond if things turn out differently because they will do uh, so that that level of uncertainty but the, but the transparency is absolutely key looking more for example of what's going on on the balance sheet side looking more at what's going on on the on the risk side now I think there are areas where you can see that that's you know long-term consideration the fact that we have ended up in a situation where the uh, uh, pension age is linked to life expectancy shows that there are times when actually people will sit back and take a decision that has got long-term implications but you know Nick McPherson never misses the opportunity to say ah yes but there's the triple lock yes uh, not the Treasury's favorite uh, <laughs> you know instrument so you know sometimes those things have uh, have effects or others but from our point of view I think it's the transparency that you can provide that, that, that is helpful. As I say, again, coming back on the, on the budget committee and the budget office side, you know, whether there is more that can be done on a sort of forward-looking view of the effectiveness of spending within the Dells, you know, uh, the Canadian parliamentary budget office, for example, you know, had a big row with the government about what they thought the likely cost of a fighter jet programme was going to be. And there's a whole area of those sorts mm. of spending issues know HS2 for mm. example where you have the PAC and the NAO looking back and you know at the disasters that have gone in the past but are, but are you providing the transparency that allows that level of scrutiny looking forward now the UK is unusual in not having that sort of arrangement here whether anybody else does it tremendously effectively I'm not expert enough to know do you know how many downloads of your documents, or do you do you because the Bank of England now have taken their inflation report? They try to do it in infographics. Do you do you I don't do you do that, or do you know how many downloads the documents happen? You do, and people pick up. You know, some of the more niche ones get more more interest <laughs> than you might imagine, which is always gratifying, particularly for the poor yeah. individual who happens who wrote to have written it. it. Yeah. Um, Clearly, there's one level of transparency at the level of providing you know, a breadth of information and trying to make it as easy to consume as possible. There's also the issue about how do you distill down Absolutely. key messages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and infographics is obviously one of the areas gone. That the Congressional Budget Office was very keen on producing like the poster-sized things that yeah. would lead you yeah, through. Yeah. Whether in the current social media generation, one exactly. thing we try to yeah. do a bit more, sort of, for example, explaining the change of judgment we made on future productivity growth is little Twitter animations, which mm, actually turned mm. out to be quite you know, effective at sort of leading through yeah. people through a brief narrative. Yeah. And I think there might be more scope, more scope for doing that. to do that sort of thing and just mm. to sort of pick out a particular theme and just take mm. people through a little story with it. Are there any burning final questions from the audience? Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Andrew Carner, a governor here at the Institute. Um, the Singaporean minister who gave us such a splendid uh, opening speech was arguing for um, long-term public good investment. I'm wondering whether the panelists think that the way our public accounts are managed and the way the spending review is managed militates against that because we don't essentially distinguish between capital expenditure and current expenditure. Could we do that? Uh, is there, would there be ways in which we could um, differentiate so that long-term investment is, is looked at differently, treated differently, and decisions are taken in a different way because there is a sort of sense of short-termism in the public debate on expenditure uh, which, which the, the, the structures of government, the accounting system and the uh, spending review 
uh, sort of encourage rather than, than discourage? So I'm sure the answer, the, I mean, the answer could, it, it, it is yes in the sense of it, it, I'm sure it could happen, but it does, it's, it's, it's quite a big change. Um, I mean, firstly, a lot of it depends on the electoral cycle, so five years, um, and people have got to produce enough rabbits out of hats or say uh, they've set an objective and they've got to have met it by the next time, otherwise um, scrutiny being what it is and our robust political system, um, then you'll, you'll get taken to the cleaners. Um, and one of the arguments I think is almost frustrating for people outside in their specialist um, areas is that there, it's, it seems so difficult to get funding for preventative work and then to measure it on the basis of what it's going to save down the track. So you could argue with educational interventions which are going to keep young people out of prison, for example, or, or, or in jobs, or um, interventions uh, in people's health, which is going to mean they're going to be independent for longer and not needing uh, care from the state. But I don't know if Robert's got a view. I, I, when, I, when you, as a minister, when you try to talk about those things, um, it's, it's very difficult to get away from what is an existing mentality. I'm not saying that people within the system like the mentality or that they wouldn't support a change but um, it, it requires quite a leap um, it would be, I mean it'd be a very interesting project if it's not happening very interesting project for some bit of some unit of the civil service to work out whether it's possible to do I think well I mean the in the accounting sense um, we did have a move to distinguishing more between capital and current than was the case if you go back to when Nick McPherson was making this point mm. yesterday uh, 20 years ago, and obviously when we had the period of the Golden Rule uh, under the Gordon Brown, there, that was explicitly based on the idea that you distinguish between capital yeah. investment for which it is acceptable to borrow and for current investment that most of the time uh, it isn't. Um, there is always the challenge to that uh, approach that conceptually you think of investment spending as spending that yields a flow of benefits in the future, whereas current or resource spending is basically you're consuming it now, that doesn't necessarily map nicely onto the national accounts distinction between the two. Some people would say that train, you know, spending money on teacher training is more likely to yield you a flow of future benefits than spending on HS2. It's not for me to comment. Um, <laughs> there is, Others are doing so. Others are doing so. <laughs> There's then the challenge, obviously, for some governments to say, well, okay, maybe we should have a better measure of investment and make the distinction ourselves, but then you worry more about that being gained in a way which, with the, national, with the Office for National Statistics policing the boundary between these two, you have to worry less about. So you're always conscious, I think, you know, it's one of those you know, irregular verbs, isn't mm -hmm. it? You know, I spend on investment, you waste yes. money. Uh, <laughs> the distinction is often that investment is spending on good things. Uh, as distinct from uh, from consumption, yeah. which is frittered away. But uh, so I think that, that that that's the challenge. There is a distinction in accounting, whether it's a distinction that matches very well to spending with long-term benefits to spending without is is less clear. Mm. Well, I'm very sorry to have eaten slightly into your lunch break. If you are joining us for the session after lunch on outsourcing, please do join us downstairs. The room literally below this one um, for a buffet lunch. For those of you who can't stay, thank you very much for coming along today and thank you very much to my panellists for such fantastic remarks. Thank you.